Hey Church of the Beloved, thanks for tuning in to our weekly sermon podcast. My name is Kevin Zoe and I'm the production manager here at COTV. Today's message is brought to us by Senior Pastor Clint Shamblin. He's preaching from 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Like I said, I am Clint. I'm one of the pastors here. I get to be able to preach God's word to you today. Uh, we continue on in our John series. In this first John series, specifically the epistles that he wrote, the letters to the church, we come across today a very, very emphatically pastoral passage. It's very short, it's very succinct, it's very to the point. And yet, the outcome of this is insanely pastoral as well as deeply theological. These two things get melded together. It's, it's insanely comforting. It's insanely personal. It's insanely relational. At the same time, it's very heady. It's, it's, it's very hard to understand. And what John does is he marries these two things together. In the previous weeks, we've gone through what is joy. And I've tried to explain to you that joy, to be able to have joy, to be able to get joy, uh, there's a hurdle in front of us a lot of the times. There's many hurdles in front of many of us much of the time. One of the biggest hurdles is this understanding of darkness. Uh, And I tried to explain last week that darkness is simply saying this. Darkness is along the lines of saying, um, I want to go have fun out on Lake Michigan. I want to go get in a boat. I want to go out there and I want to go sail uh, in in the lake. Um, But my boat is is very leaky. It's got holes all along the pond. It's not seaworthy, as they say. So what happens is if you didn't have a seaworthy boat, if you didn't have something that could sail, that wasn't in, had integrity, you could lie to yourself and you say, no, I'm fine. The boat's fine. There's no holes in it. I'm fine. And you get out in the middle of the lake, and what happens to your boat and your day? You sink, and joy is zapped from you. However, if you were to say, no, 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 my boat is leaky. It has holes in it. I need it patched up before I go enjoy the lake. Ah, Actually, in that case, the hurdle to your joyful day is a recognition that I have holes all over the boat and it will sink. Great. That's actually a step towards joy to enjoying the day. Today, uh, I get the abject pleasure of trying to show you from Scripture two very, very, very deeply theological aspects. One is the justice of God. The justice of how sin has destroyed connection with God Almighty. And the second insanely deep theological point is this. Well, we are, we are not only justified legally in front of God, but we're welcomed personally before God. We are deeply, deeply legally justified before God. And the second thing is we are deeply, deeply, deeply affectionately welcomed by God. And these two things are insane processes. Uh, I know that we have one lawyer who's hanging out with the kids right now, which is, praise God. Um, We have a second lawyer that I know of in the congregation, and I don't think she's here today, and that makes me feel really good. Because I'm going to start talking judicially on a couple of things, and I don't want to be confused. Like, can I tell you the worst person to have in a congregation? It's not a lawyer, by the way. That's not who I'm talking about. Uh, Seminary students. Are the abject worse? And Riley's not here either. Fantastic. Three, I'm three through three so far. The lawyers are out of here and the seminary professor's not here. This is great. Uh, seminary student is the worst because what happens every single time is they're like, oh, pastor, you didn't conjugate that Greek verb so well. And I'm like, it's, it's, shh, <laughs> like, quiet. 
The sad thing is I was there the whole entire time. I was that guy that was in seminary class and then came to church and like, pastor, you better watch out. And the pastor, every single time, the most loving thing he did was like, oh, that's so cute. The most loving thing he could do to me. And I'm, praise God for that. Today, as we talk about this judicial legal aspect of the gospel, I want to present to you how Jesus as an advocate, or as we come to understand, a defense lawyer, is one of the most loving things that he can do for you and I as Christ Almighty. That having a cosmic defense lawyer for all of the sin and all of the, the trespasses that we have in life is the most beautiful, loving thing. Because it's not just a, the best defense attorney money can buy, but it's also the best friend that you've ever had. And these two marriages are insane for us. To try to show you this, how this marriage of pastoral and as well as theological come together, I'm going to state for you what the Westminster Confession of Faith has said about Christ as advocate. It's going to make no sense to you. It's going to be so bizarre and so weird. And I want to say it to you. I want to preempt this by saying this is the weight of this verse, these two very small verses. And as far as I could tell, as I look at Scripture, this is one of my favorite places because it takes the formality of justification. I'm about to read to you and the pastoral relationship of Christ, and it puts them in such a way that this concept is very rarely understood with clarity in Scripture. So this is what the Westminster Confession, which is a Presbyterian document of a tradition of faith. It says this, The office of the Lord Jesus Christ did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge. He was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it, enduring most grievous torments immediately in his soul and most painful sufferings of his body, was crucified, died, and was buried, and remained under the power of death, yet saw no corruption. On the third day he rose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, in which he also ascended into heaven, and there sitteth at the right hand of God the Father, making intercession, and shall return to judge the men's and angels at the end of the world. Oh my gosh. Now if we were to take time and parse all of that out, we'd have definitions all over the place. Intercession, return to judge men and angels at the end of the world, right there alone. Okay, <laughs> we, got, we got some controversy, we got some issues, we got some questions. The weight of this aspect, which I'm gonna try to teach you, is so difficult. This understanding of judge and, and, and defense attorney, as well as the legality of us being forgiven, is not an easy concept. I wanna encourage you with something, church. To understand how you're justified before a cosmic God is abjectly bananas. It's crazy. It's insane. It doesn't make any sense. So, if you struggle with this concept, welcome. Let it be a warm blanket around you because this is what John says at the beginning of this verse. He says, my dear children, my dear children, what he's saying is this, to understand how you're justified for all of the wrongdoing you've ever done in life before a God who is perfect. How do you stand before a God who is perfect? Do you guys remember when you did really awful things and you had some authority, a parent, a caregiver, um, a, a president of an association or something like that, and you had to go before them just caught red-handed and you had to admit what you've done before them, the guilt and shame and the ridicule you felt inside your own soul, inside your own body? Now, take that, times it by a million, for every little, tiny, minute thing you've ever done in life before a cosmic God who knows all things. Here's my question to you. 
Do you think you could stand in front of his presence knowing everything you've done awfully wrong? Probably not. You probably couldn't. Uh, one of the weirdest things as a pastor uh, that happens to me is people will come to me and say, hey, pastor, I, I got something to tell you. You're, gosh, it's so embarrassing. You're going to be shocked to hear this. And I tell people all the time, like, I won't be, I promise you. And they're like, no, this is really, 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 really bad. And I'm like, okay, give it to me. And then people will say, here's my confession. I go, is that it? And they're like, well, yeah, that's awful. And I'm like, ah, come on, you could do better than that. Like, like give me the, the, the worst of sin, <laughs> if there was such a thing. If we, if we feel that to just a title of pastor, to the office of pastor, imagine what it would be like in front of a God who knows every single thought you've ever had. Could you stand before him? Can you not be ashamed in front of him? Today, I want to show you how to hurdle the joy of darkness, or to hurdle the darkness into joy, so that we may possess joy, as John says. And the way that I want to do that, I, I teased a little bit with the, with the Confession of Faith, chapter 20 of the Confession of Faith of Westminster. It comes from this term that is only in John, 1 John, two times. That's the only time we get this understanding that we call Christ this advocate, this judge, this person who is standing before us, giving us advocacy on behalf of the Father, the defense attorney. The only time this happens is in John, and it's really hard to understand, so I'm going to try to unpack it best I can. So at the end of this, I, I open this up for question and answer all the time. If you have questions, please come ask me, because this is the fundamental aspect of Christian faith. If you can't say to yourself, yes, I, I am a Christian, I follow this Jesus guy, and I believe him, today I want to make it perfectly clear how you can. If you've grown up in a religious atmosphere your entire life, where things were expected of you morally, but you haven't had an intrinsic relationship with God the Father, I want to challenge you and encourage you today, this is how you get it. It's this perfect marriage between two things. How does God forgive somebody and at the same time know everything that we've done and not just forget our sin? How do we stand before a cosmic deity that knows every little lie that we've ever thought, every racist thought we've ever thought that hasn't come out of our mouth, so we're fine, but has been in our hearts, so we're not? How do we stand before that God, being forgiven and at the same time fully known? It's a challenge. For how to do this, I want to give you an example. I was reading Tim Keller's new book on forgiveness, and in it he gives this example from Rachel Den Hollander. Rachel Den Hollander was a sexual abuse victim. Uh, she was at a very, very, very pre prestigious Midwestern university on the gymnastics team. Very famous case of an abuser. Rachel was abused herself, and years later she wrote a memoir as well as a follow-up book or an essay from her husband, who is a pastor now. And in it, she was able to, to comment on something very, very difficult, very, very hard. Rachel said, I was abused. Sin happened. This is gross and disgusting. It happened on a scale that should have never been accepted. Now, when we're faced with things like this, and Rachel comments in her memoir, she said, we have essentially three options. One option is to never forgive that person knowing how wicked and awful and sinful they are and make them pay. Oh, the criminal justice is the full weight of the hammer crushed them. And she said, as I look at scripture, that doesn't seem to be the case. God doesn't crush people. He forgives them. So we say, oh, great, we should forgive all of this abuse. And she goes, that doesn't seem right to forget it. It doesn't seem right that we just allow this to continue and say it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. 
It is fundamentally wrong. So Rachel says, I couldn't just forget it either, but I couldn't crush him. Those are the first two options. The third option is this, to forgive them, whoever is the abuser, whoever is the perpetrator, by having someone else take on the guilt. It's the only way that she could go forward forgiving this person of the abuse that they did, as well as not excusing it. Not blame shifting, not excusing it, and not taking it on only herself. What she had to realize, what she must realize is this. She had to say there is a God who is above all. And he is the best and the greatest thing in the world. And the sin that happened to me, there's actually a sin above that. And that sin above that is that this person perpetrated God's creative cosmos in such an abusive way that he's going to have to deal eternally with God. And what she realized, what she understood about forgiveness is this. He needs an advocate just as much as I need an advocate. And my sin and his sin manifest, look horrible and awful, but at the same time, Rachel knew I've sinned before God countless times and he's forgiven me countless times. How? Ah, he's had an, he brought an advocate to me that my sins are thrust upon somebody else and I don't have to pay for them. Do you see how complex this issue is? Do you see the emotional turmoil that even when I tell the story of Rachel and the problems that are in this world, we say, make him pay, make him suffer, crash him down. And then we say this, but what if you have penalty or crimes that you've committed that you need crushed for? And you go, no, 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 don't, don't, don't crush me. <laughs> don't, don't have the weight of the, the system come on me. Why should it go on him? Well, because he's worse. Oh, do you see how complex this is? Do you see how difficult this is? Do you see why John presents this entire passage and why I'm taking a time to try to frame it under the understanding of, he says, my dear children, care, concern, intimacy, warmth, because John's about to hit us with something. My dear children, you're so grossly in sin. <laughs> I don't like hearing that, John. <laughs> Tell me how good I am. John pastorally can't because he says, I pray that you don't sin, comma, you're going to sin. When you do, I pray that you have an advocate that you know that you know that you know that you know has forgiven you and how he did that is insanely important. So that's my framing of it today for you. How do we stand before a perfect and holy God who knows everything, who we're completely naked in front of, we're completely exposed, and yet forgives us in entirety, fully knowledgeable and fully forgiven. We don't do those two things well, do we? Marriage is really difficult because you see everybody, like you see each other completely exposed. You know the inner thoughts, you know the inner workings, you know all the, 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 the little bits that are gross and disgusting about the other person. That's hard, but also it's really warm, isn't it? It's really lovely to know somebody so intimately, so deeply that you know their deepest, darkest secrets. Ah, oh, that's lovely. Today, I want to show you how to do that and how God does that with you and I, how to have that relationship with the cosmic maker. I want to show you three things. I want to talk about who gets an advocate, this term that John uses where he says propitiation, or halasmas, this, this Greek understanding of the, of the atonement seat, of how justice is taken care of, how crime is paid for. 
I want to show you who gets an advocate for all the sin that we've committed, a defense attorney. Secondly, I want to show you how is this advocate operating? How do they operate as a defense attorney? What kind of defense attorney are they? And lastly, what this a defense attorney accomplishes for us. So first, who gets an advocate? Secondly, how is he an advocate? And lastly, what does he do as an advocate? The first thing we need to understand about who gets an advocate, as John talks about, again, it's very, very warm. It's very, very comforting. He says, dear children, I pray that you do not sin. Uh, as pastors, Pastor Abe and I get the joy of praying for you all. And one of the things that we pray is that you don't go on sinning. It sounds very, very, doesn't that sound like very Puritan-esque, very, very high and like moral? Like, I pray you don't sin. You're like, thanks. Can you pray for my student loans to be forgiven? Like, that would be a better prayer. We pray you don't go on sinning because going on in darkness is zapping you of joy. And going on sinning is perpetuating the darkness, therefore not bringing you joy. So as we pray, we pray exactly what John does. Comma, we know that you will continue to sin. I know, you know, we all know you're going to go on sinning. Now, this is really important for us because as John's going to say, Christ died for the sins of the whole world. And we think to ourselves, I want forgiveness like that. I want somebody that's going to forgive me no matter what I've done and accept me completely. But that's not where John starts. He starts with, my dear children, I pray you don't sin, but when you sin. And in it, again, he's doing it in language that should be welcoming to us. But in it, he's actually pointing to a deep, deep truth. If I was to ask you who's the only person on the planet that cannot, will never, can never get the gospel, how would you answer? Don't speak out loud. Don't say it out loud. Who's the only person that you can think of in your life that you're like, oh yeah, this person, they can never, they would never get the gospel. Oh, this person, they're so, they're so awful. They, they vote this way. They speak this way. They act this way. Maybe Rachel's abuser fits in that category for you where you say, they, they can never be forgiven. Do you know the only person that could never, ever, ever, ever get the gospel is the one who doesn't understand their need? That's it. The only person that forbids the gospel of Jesus Christ to come into their life is the person that says to themselves, I don't need it. Is the good person more acceptable of the gospel? No. Is the bad person more acceptable of the gospel? No. Is the religious person that grew up in church since they were at the time of two years old, are they more receptive to the gospel and they get it? No. Here's a, here's a, here's a way to try to pin it on, you, on your hearts. Who's more? Who should be forgiven more? Rachel Denhollander or her abuser? Because what we say is, oh, no, 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 Rachel, Rachel needs all the help. Rachel needs everything in the world. Rachel, and what she says is, I'm fine. Because I know my need is I am so broken to a cosmic creator that sin exists and I was a victim of it. But I know that I know that I know I am not as good and better than he. Do you know what, do you know what, do you know what kind of constitution that takes to say that? See, John says, dear children, I pray that you don't sin, but when you sin, I pray that you understand you have an advocate before you. I pray that you understand just how deeply in need you are. I pray that 
as you are going on doing things against the cosmic maker, that you understand the penalty for doing so is death. The only people in the entire world that do not believe they are going to heaven or don't even think they want to go to heaven, the only people that are, that are literally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, unable to receive the gospel are those who don't know their need. Church, do you know your need for a cosmic creator to forgive you for the sins that you've created? Because the second you say, okay, pastor, listen here. I may do some bad things. I may jaywalk across the streets. I, I, may, I, I may hide my license plate number as I'm going through tolls and not get videotaped and, and camera. Okay, sure. I may pull up to the... I saw this one. This was happening on Irvin Parkway. There's a red light camera, a speeding camera, and I, I noticed that there's only one lane, and the, the guy that comes zooming up and makes a lane over here, I'm like, there's no two lanes. What are you doing? I'm like, oh, he's shielding himself from the camera. So he goes by 45 miles per hour, and they take a photo, and whose photo do they get? Mine. <laughs> like, what is going on? You may say, okay, sure, Pastor. I, I do those things. I, I may have those... <laughs> I saw you, okay? I know who you are. No, I didn't see you. It's fine. You may say, okay, that's, that's there. But that's not really that bad. That's not really that sinful. I just need a little help from Jesus. Jesus' words are these. You are dead in your transgressions, all of them. He says, you don't get a little part of me. You get either all of me or none of me. And all of me says, even in your good moments, you are sinful. Even in your good moments, you are sinful. What do I mean by that? John will go on to explain, and Jesus explains himself, that would you have the audacity to admit that even when you think you're helping people out, you're doing it for your own selfish good? Even if you are saying to yourself, I want to help this person out, I want to do these things. If it's not to honor and glorify Christ, what you're doing is honor and glorifying your own way. You're, you're, you're trying to perpetuate a value you have and you're throwing it on to people saying, you must do as I do and I'll serve you in doing so. Do you have the audacity to admit that if Christ isn't the one declaring that, it's your value you want progressed? And if that's the case, church, isn't anybody who has their value progressed, even if it doesn't agree with you, they're doing just the same as you are? Maybe we should stop progressing our values and start progressing his. Do you see that need? Do you see that? Do you understand that concept right there? Because that's the beginning of gospel understanding, where you admit you have the, the gall to say, even in my good moments, I want more of Clint. And in my bad moments, I clearly want more of me. Maybe, as scripture says, less of me, more of him is better. That's what John's saying. The very first thing that you need to understand is interest into the kingdom is knowing who you are. And do you have the audacity to admit who you are as a needy person? Doesn't that feel uncomfortable on us? Because... A lot of you are self-made people. A lot of you are hard-working people. A lot of you are very smart. A lot of you are very accomplished. Y'all humble, humble brag on each other all the time. You don't brag about yourself, but I know what you're doing in life, and it's insane. It's incredible. 
would you have the audacity to admit that even in those things that you're good at, you needed help to get there? You needed breaks? You needed luck? We call, whatever we call, mean that, but I call it sovereignty of God. We call it luck. That's where you start. That's where you start, knowing who you are. That's what gets you entrance into the kingdom. Uh, there's this movie, it's a fantastic movie, Rookie of the Year. This is very old, very PG. It's such a bad movie, guys, I'm sorry. It's so, so bad. But in it, Henry Rowengartner breaks his arm. And after he gets his cast off, he all of a sudden can throw 100 miles per hour. And so the worst baseball team in America signs him to a contract. And that worst baseball team is, in fact, the Chicago Cubs. Because they're awful. I don't like the Cubs. I love Wrigley Field. It's fantastic. But he goes to the player's entrance his very first time out there. He, he goes up to the entrance, and, and there's the field manager who's out there, and he looks through the window, and the field manager looks at these kids, and he says, hey, come back later. Uh, autographs are after the game. And Henry goes, no, no, no. I'm Henry Rowengardner. And the guy goes, why didn't you say so? Come on in. And, and he opens the door, and it's like the Wizard of Oz moment, and they open the gates, and they go through, and he goes and plays. The acceptability into Wrigley, the acceptability into the kingdom is knowing who you are. And what John says and what Christ says is you are my children who are in need. If you don't need him, why would you seek him? Church, why are you seeking Christ? Is it because you need him? Then great, you have an advocate. If you need him, admit that you take a second seat to him and he will do all the work for us. That's the first thing. It's such great news. The second thing, that's who needs an advocate, those who are in need. The second thing, how does an advocate work? By substitution. An advocate works by substitution. Now, this gets a little weird for us because as we're talking judicial system, if you were brought up on charges, uh, what should you do? Uh, and I, I, I only learned this. I told somebody I love the TV show Law & Order. It's one of my favorite shows of all time. Jack McCoy and I like our spirit animals with each other. It's fantastic. If you don't know that show, go watch it. In the show, Law & Order, every single time somebody comes up, and, and it's the worst thing you could do in the legal system, when you get charged with something and you say to yourself, I will represent my own case, stop. Take all the money you have and go buy in a defense attorney. Go do it. Why? Why? Because having somebody represent you is far better than you representing yourself on things that you did wrong. Now, we know this from a personal level. John says, my dear children, when you sin, I pray you understand an advocate before you who is speaking on behalf of you to God the Father right now, who's, who's doing intercessory prayer for you. And why do I say his substitute, his understanding, his words are far better than our own? Uh, have you ever found somebody who's wronged you and they keep on trying to explain why what they did wasn't that bad? Like, well, you have to understand and you're like, no, I don't. <laughs> you, you punched me. Well, I was, I, was, I, I was nervous. Okay, but you didn't have to punch me. Like, that's weird. Okay, but I was excited. And they keep going down excuse after excuse. You're like, none of this matters. None of this makes sense. None of this can stand the test of time. Because they're only selfishly trying to get out of something. They're, they're trying to remove punishment. But what if somebody else in your situation, another friend comes to you and says, hey, I know... I know this person spoke harshly to you the other day, but you have to understand that their dad's in the hospital dying of cancer. All of a sudden you go, 
Oh. Yeah, I get why they were short. That makes a lot of sense. Doesn't that simple transaction, the words are, are literally the same, but when they come from somebody who is short with you, you're like, okay, I guess I have to now. Jeez, way to throw that trump card on me. Or when they come from somebody else, all of a sudden you go, thank you for explaining that to me. See, God right now, God the Father, is perfect and holy and beautiful, and he is up there on the throne. He's looking all of our sin and all that we've done and saying, there is payment that's needed for this. This goes against my creative order. This goes against what I wanted. This is an abomination. And we say, God, no, you have to understand, we did this because. Or what if his son right now is saying the same exact thing we want to, but it comes from his own son, and God says, oh, that's a different story. Oh, son, you, you know these people? You're speaking on behalf of them? And all of a sudden, the relational connection between God the Father and Christ the Son now gets thrown onto you and I like a warm blanket. So here's the biggest thing of an advocate, what they do, this defense attorney, why you should never say, I myself want to go and, and represent myself. You should never do that. Because as the defense attorney speaks on their own words, do you know what they're actually speaking on behalf of? You. Their words are now your words. And you're like, I don't know the legal system. I don't know how to get out of this. They're like, don't worry, I do. And you're like, well, that's good for you. How are you going to help me? Ah, because before the judge, the judge considers their words, your words, they're the same. You're represented by them. They take everything from the judge. They make motions. They go through the legal system. That's how you're protected. And that's how Christ protects you and I against all the sin of the world and all the things that we've done. He doesn't say, we try to do this, don't we? We try to say, well, God, I'm not as bad as my sin. Look at all the good that I've done. Look, I, 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 I try to help. It's you know Thanksgiving coming around, so you're like, well, I'll just throw a couple of, of dollars into the red tin, or I'll, I'll, I'll help do this. God, look at how great that is. Look at how awesome I Look how servant-minded I am. Look at my job. Can I, can I confess to you something of my own? When I sin and I try to go before God and I try to judiciously tell him that he shouldn't punish me, I say, God, I'm a pastor. I like, I like, I like pray all day and read the Bible all day and serve people all day. Clearly, I'm, you're not going to punish me. He goes, oh, that does nothing for me, Clint. Your goodness can never outweigh the weight of not matching perfection. That's the sin. The sin is, I want more of me, less of God. And we've done that forever. And no amount of making up, no amount of doing anything for him will ever get us into heaven. The easiest way I can show you this is uh, when somebody buys, offers to buy you coffee, and you're like, oh, that was very kind of you. What do you say in your head as they buy you coffee? You're like, I'll get the next one. Because we hate having people have one-ups on us, don't we? Like there's this tally in our head. Or maybe you like uh, go to, maybe you've done this with parents. They come into town, they want to pay for dinner. And you're like, no, dad, I got this. No, son, I got this. No, mom, I got this. No, daughter, I got this. And there's like this little banter back and forth. Because you're saying to yourself, I'm a real person. <laughs> I can pay for my own food. Let them pay, you guys. Just pass the credit card. That, that understanding in our hearts, that's called works righteousness. I need to pay back what God did for me. You'll never be able to do it. 
could you jump on a cross, die for the entire sin of all humanity? No? Then your $25 lunch is not going to do a drop in the bucket. It can't. Who needs an advocate? Those who are needy. What does the advocate do? The advocate stands in our place and takes on the penalty that we could never, ever pay back. So if you understand your need, you understand just how guilty you are in sin, you understand that you are so ashamed that if every single person, let me me play this game. I don't know if we'll have the technology to do this later in life. Those who work in IT, you tell me. We got a Google Suite employee, they, they could tell me. I want to know if we're going to be able to have like a connection to a brain synapse machine that every single thought in my head will be broadcast on a video monitor. And if that can't happen, praise God. Because what if we could? What if I was able to insert a microchip into your brain synapses and I was able to know every single little tiny thought you ever had? And I was able to watch it on a video monitor. And I was able to listen to every single thought that you spoke silently internally would you have many friends after a day (laughs) when you're tired and you're gross and you're disgusting i had to confess to the staff we just went on staff retreat and um, i'm an introvert hard and all of staff are extroverts every last one of them and so they're like talking and having a good time and i'm just like grabbing the steering wheel like just drive and get home just drive and get home And I loved my time with them, but there comes a time in which my brain starts melting. And so I just confessed to them. I said, hey, guys, I'm tired. (laughs) I'm going to start driving like a lunatic. It is nothing against you. I want to be around you. But if I continue to be, I will act poorly in front of you. If they were inside my head, they would have heard all that. So I just confessed it out loud. I said, you're going to see my body language change. I'm just tired. I'm cranky. Now, that was me preempting it. Could you imagine if people knew your every thought and every action and every internalized value? You wouldn't have any friends. If I didn't say that out loud and the staff instead saw the little tiny Clint inside, the little emotional Clint inside my brain, and he was like fuming and he was getting upset, and every little tiny noise was making him upset, they'd be like, wow, he's a jerk. I am. It's my job to go, I am a jerk and I need grace and I need to repent for these things. But if we don't do that and everybody saw our inner monologue, we wouldn't have any friends. Don't represent yourself because God does have that insight to every single thought and inner monologue you ever had. So you trying to convince him how good you are, he goes, I have the tape. I know what you think. I know what you are actually gossiping about. I know what you're doing when no one else does. So church, can I encourage you with something? Stop trying to impress God. Instead, if you were to be asked by God the Father, why should I accept you in my kingdom? You say, you shouldn't. (laughs) You shouldn't accept me in my kingdom. I'm, I'm not good for your kingdom. Then why should I? Because Jesus says I should be. And he goes, that I can listen to. That's my son. That's my boy. I'll take his word. How does the advocate work as a defense attorney for you and I? Uh, There's this new movie coming out, Whale. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, All I've seen is you guys seen uh, Brendan Fraser crying on stage. Uh, Whale's, it's this new movie coming out. If you don't like movies, God save your soul. Um, Whale is coming out. It's fantastic. I don't know anything about it. 
But I do know the main actor, Brendan Fraser, is not a good actor, according to me. Like, I've seen him in movies, and I think, like, what's that Encino Man is out there, right? Okay, Jonah and I are the movie people here. Okay, Jonah, this sermon's just for you and I now. Um, and he's just a bad actor. He's, he's not good. They showed this at a film festival, and all of a sudden, people are, they come out, and people are standing for 10, 15-minute ovation for his performance in this movie. If you were to ask Brendan Fraser, and Brendan Fraser on stage starts melting to tears, he starts crying, he can't control himself, he's sobbing at the witness of these people standing in ovation to him. Why was he broken down? Why was he so manifestly, outwardly broken and moved by it? Because he knew something. I don't deserve this. And yet I'm getting an ovation for the work that I've done? Church, right now, Christ is doing a standing ovation for you to his Father. And you, would you have the gall to say, I don't deserve this standing ovation, but I'll take it because you're giving it to me. And would you be broken to that fact? Because that's what Christ is doing right now. That's what the defense is doing right now. He's representing you, speaking lavish love words about you to, the, to God the Father. Lastly, what's the advocate work? See, a lot of times we think in Christian circles that Jesus is this grace and mercy, grace and mercy, grace and mercy. That's what we're supposed to be about. That's all we're supposed to be about. Actually, church, the thing that's so remarkable about this aspect, about this verse, is grace and mercy have nothing to do with this verse. And you're like, wait a second, it says forgiven. Ah, it does say forgiven. But do you know what it says about forgiveness? It's God's justice that forgives us. Not his grace and mercy, not his benevolence, not his love. If you look on the cross when Christ died, do you know his, his words to the Father? It doesn't say, hey, God, have mercy on them. That's what many of us cry out to God. In scriptures, tons of times people come up and say, hey, have mercy on me, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. And Jesus flips the script every single time. And when he's dying on the cross, Christ says, Father, they don't know what they do. And then he doesn't say, could you have mercy on them? Could you give them grace? He says, forgive them. It's this declaration. It's not a question mark. It's not a plea. It's not an emotional response. It's a declaration of the only one on planet Earth that can justify you and I. It'd be like this. We just went through a political cycle. Uh, and I like the, um, the announcement of the conceding phone call. It's the funniest tradition we have to me in the world. They're like, well, did they, get the, did they get the phone call of conceding the election? And it's like, no, they didn't, not yet. And then we wait a while until that phone call happens. Quick question. Does the phone call from the losing representative to the other representative, does that make them the winner or the loser? No. No, it, it doesn't do anything. It, it's a, it's a feel-good thing. It's a, it's a tradition. It's something like that. What makes somebody the winner of an election? This is not a trick question, by the way. I know I'm talking about elections right now. I'm not trying to troll you. <laughs> Let me tell you what gives you, by having more votes. Okay, period, that's it. Now move on from the political conversation. Having more votes is the legal way that you are now elected into an office. Not the, not the consolation call. That doesn't do anything. If Christ went to the Father and said, Father, have mercy on them, he would be like, I, I can have mercy. I want to have mercy all day long. I'm a loving Father. There's a debt still to be paid. 
Imagine if you have a mortgage and you can't pay your mortgage because you're destitute. And somebody comes and says, here, I'm going to pay this mortgage for you. And they pay off your mortgage. Is that debt canceled? No. Do you know what's happened to that debt? It's just been transferred. Now your friend owes the debt. You don't owe the debt, your friend does. You're like, ha ha, I fell with my mortgage, I'm out of here. Do you know the only person that can forgive that debt? The only person on the planet that can forgive the, the debt of your mortgage for your home or your condo or your apartment? The bank. The bank is the only one that can say, I forgive this, not I'm going to pay it and then somebody else is gonna have to keep paying us. The bank says, nope, it's canceled and done, no more payment on it. The institution that holds your debt is the only institution that could cancel it. If our sin is ultimately against God the Father, the only person that can forgive it and cancel it is God the Father. Your good works can't make up, can't pay off your mortgage. Somebody else's good works cannot make up your mortgage, cannot pay it off. And if they did, it would just be transferred. No, this is the, this is the crazy part of this John passage. What Jesus is saying is this. John is saying of Jesus, he has forgiven our trespasses because he has become a sacrifice for us. He has become God, the son incarnate in man and died on behalf of our sin. And this is where it gets really tricky for us. This is where it gets really hard for us because we want to say, well, can't Jesus just like snap his fingers and God, he's a loving father. He's all about love. Let's just love each other. Let me go back to Rachel Denhollander. If God is a just God, should he look at the abuser and say, oh, you're fine, just, just live a better life. Go out in the world, just be fine. How loving would that be to other gymnasts, to other women? Would that be loving to them? To say, love wins, free reign, mercy to him. No, it wouldn't be. Do you know what's really loving to him and to the rest of the world? To convict him and put him in prison. That's loving. Why? Why is that loving? Because justice is real. Grace and mercy is what God is in the business of. But he doesn't say grace and mercy at no cost. He says grace and mercy at a huge cost. At somebody taking a penalty. Not the penalty just leaving. Not having penalties is not loving. That, that, that doesn't equate. But rather it's God's justice that held him on the cross. That he said the only person able to forgive you is me. And I will take on the death that you should have had yourself. Justice expressed is not justice transferred. Justice expressed is justice placed on the only one who can forgive it, the bank with your mortgage or Christ with your sin. And you know what he says of you right now? You know he's speaking of those of us who are in Christ right now to God the Father? Oh, God, I love them. God, I died for them. God, Father, I took on their debt. And this is where this understanding of, of judicial language keeps going. There's double jeopardy attached to your sin. Your sin has already been paid out. There's no more payment required for it. Your good works can't, you get, can't get you more into heaven. Your good works can't get you more of love of Christ. Your bad works can't get you further out of the kingdom. Why? 
Double jeopardy's attached. The court case is over. It's done. The declaration has been mailed out. It's been proclaimed. So when he says, dear children, I pray you don't sin, but when you sin, please know this, Christ is already paying your debt. Here's how I want to end. Uh, name the most benevolent person in your life that you know of. Think about them. They've given to you endlessly. They serve you. They love you. They talk to you. They're a cheerleader for you. What would you do for that person? You say, I would do anything for that person. <laughs> I would give my life for that person. Does it change your interaction, how much they serve and love you and speak about you and cheerlead for you and encourage you? It does, doesn't it? And you go, oh, I'd do anything for them. That's Christ to us. He says, I've died for you. I've given everything. I'm the most servant-minded person on the planet. And if our response is not, I'll do anything for him because he died for me. He, took a, he, he, he made double jeopardy of my sin no longer existent. I can't be blamed for it. I can't be brought under the crucifixion for it. That starts changing you. Do you see how me giving you rules and, and, and religion and telling you how to be a better person will never change you? Because you're thinking the entire time, oh, this is how I make up to God. This is how I be a better Christian. This is how I love God more. Stop doing it. You'll never succeed. Church, can I just free you? You'll never out-love the love of God. You'll never out-sin it either. So you might say, sweet, I can do whatever I want. Ooh. Now you've missed the point. Because if my son pushed you out of the way of an oncoming train and then he was killed himself in that train and you went on to live whatever life you didn't and didn't appreciate his sacrifice, you and I would have a problem. How you are somebody that understands the gospel is this. Do you see the sacrifice Christ made? And you don't have to do good to get good. And you can't out -sin his love. But doesn't it make sense that if you understand the weight of God's sacrifice to you, that you would try not to sin? You would try to be more like Christ? You would try to serve him more? Nay, you would want to. Do you see how it changes you? Do you see that subtle difference? No longer I have to, but I get to. No longer I need to to get God's grace, but I want to because he's given me his grace. Do you see how that changes, church? Dear children, I pray to you that you do not sin, but when you do, I pray that you feel his affection pouring over you. That no matter height, nor depth, nor breadth, nor weight, nor principalities, nor things of this world or things of heaven can ever separate you from the love of Christ. And I pray that relationship makes you want to be more like him more. Let's pray. Thanks for tuning in to this week's COTV Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us, you can visit us online at cotv.life. God bless and have a great week.